Welcome to Understand Murdoch. I'm your host, Glenn Smith, editor of the Post and Courier's Watchdog and Public Service team. I'm joined here today by three reporters who covered every day of the six-week Alex Murdoch trial, Thad Moore, Jocelyn Greshik, and Avery Wilkes. Today, we're going to take a swing at answering some lingering questions that remain even after Murdoch was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison for the June 2021 murders of his wife and son. I'm going to start here with Thad. Even after a 29-day trial, it's still something of a mystery about how and why Maggie and Paul Murdoch were killed. Why do we still not know the full story here? Yeah, I think this is one of the parts of this case that is part of why it's fascinating and part of also why it's kind of maddening. The state, obviously, over over multiple weeks, took pains to show us everything that they could figure out about Alex's movement the night of the murders, um, as well as the movements of Maggie and Paul, um, down to the sort of the exact second that they moved their phone a certain way or their phone screen lit up. But we, we only sort of see this like rough outline of what happened. So really like the most pivotal moment of the whole uh, case in a way is these four minutes between where we know Alec is at the dog kennels because he's caught on a video talking with Maggie and Paul and four minutes later when Maggie and Paul abruptly stop using their phones and responding to text messages and phone calls. But because this is, we only see the outline, we don't really know what happened. And and the state has a theory of, of why this happened, which is that Alec was desperate. He's, uh, he's got financial inquiries closing in on him and this was a desperate bid to buy him some time. But there's sort of a human level where you sort of wonder, does that really make sense? Like, it seems so drastic um, to to really buy yourself only about a month. And I, I think we'll, we may never really truly know why this happened, which is, which is one of the things that's almost so frustrating about it and why I think people maybe get sort of so uh, stuck on this case. Like, there's just something about it that doesn't make sense. And there's all these theories about why it could have happened. And the problem is that really only one person knows the truth, at least as far as we know. And based on the the jury's uh, finding, they didn't believe Alex's story that he didn't do this. But but we know that he's got a long history of uh, deceit and lies and... I, one thing that's really stuck with me is even if he came out and said why he did it, I don't think that, I mean, would we believe him? Um, that's what's so really maddening about this case is we heard all of this evidence and yet we can only sort of see the the broad outlines of what happened. Um, it's sort of like this consummate mystery in that way. And I think that's part of why it's probably going to have a, a long legacy in certainly the the minds of South Carolinians. Well, it certainly didn't take the jury long to come to a verdict on that uh, very quickly. Uh, you were right there in the courtroom when they announced the verdict. You're also there for the sentencing. Um, for, for the many, many people who filed this case and didn't have that real courtside access, I guess you could say. Um, just what was it like? I mean, tell us a little bit about what it was like to be in that room. Yeah, it was really it was really chaotic. Um, I mean, I guess more the build up to the verdict was really chaotic. I mean, obviously, you know, this is a long case. We knew that the jury had the potential to take a really long time to to sort out the information. 
and uh, you know obviously the um the jury found that there was plenty of evidence to to convict Alec but but looking at the evidence you know like I was just saying like the how and the why are not quite understood and my expectation based on that was that the the jury could take some time it, it could take some time for them to come to a consensus because you just need a couple of people to be kind of on the fence or uncertain and that's then you end up with extended deliberations um and other people thought you know it'd be quick and and obviously uh, that's why I sh- i'm not in the prognostication business because i was wrong <laughs> i thought it would be longer um but yeah there was this this really chaotic moment there's sort of a media center across the street from the courthouse and they had the live feed of the of the room and normally it was just trained on like the state seal above where judge newman sat and there was this one moment after about three hours or actually two and a half maybe where the the camera moved and before i think i could even say to avery and jocelyn like hey something's up i had like thrown down my phone because you couldn't have a phone in the courtroom sprinted across the street um managed to had to like bang on the courtroom door because it was still locked managed to get in um and then everybody there was like what what's the big deal like uh like, is there a note or something? Or people were thinking that maybe the cameraman just jostled the camera. But then obviously we found out it was a verdict. And I think at that moment, we, we sort of knew what the outcome was. And it was it was just striking to me to sort of be sitting across the, uh, the aisle from Alex's family and just sort of seeing how stoic they were. Um, but you just still, you had a sort of sense of the, the, the weight of this moment. I mean, everybody's been thinking about this case for almost a year and a half more than a year and a half this family's had this huge legacy in this area for better part of a century so it was a it was a really sort of monumental moment in that way yeah and now across the street in the media center like you said uh you got jocelyn and avery over there and jo- jocelyn's been doing these like up to the moment updates throughout this, this trial and just covering every little minute of it. Avery's like about to break Twitter under the weight of his mega thread every day with like enough tweets to, to probably put my fingers in, in some sort of paralysis. Um, so now a year and a half and, and all this work comes down to that moment. I mean, it's gotta be kind of nerve wracking, right? To get that news out and want to be right on top of it and get the story to tell us a little bit about the mood in the media center and, and, sort of capturing that first draft of history. It was really scary. I I remember uh, Jocelyn being on my my back constantly about writing, you know, pre-writing versions of the story in which he's found guilty or which he's acquitted. You know, we do that a lot in the news business, but uh, you know, you can't, you can't feel prepared enough for that moment. And, you know, we thought we might have more time. We were actually, planning I think a pizza order at the time and uh and and then you know people suddenly started sprinting out of the media room and toward the courthouse and like like Thad said the 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 cameras you know zooming in and out and it looks like there's some movement in the courtroom and so you just go into sort of fight or flight mode right and and uh yeah I just it was one of the it was one of the more nerve wracking moments. I remember looking over at Jocelyn and being like, I'm so nervous. And, you know, I don't even have like a a stake in this really, other than being a person who's covering it. Um, But, you know, thankfully I think we had, we had done a lot to prepare. I think we had having all of us had been there for the previous 28 days, 
you know, we were as well positioned as anybody to write that story. Um, and, and, and thanks in large part to Jocelyn's insistence that we be prepared. We were, we were very prepared for it. Yeah, Jocelyn, this is the second trial for you, right? I mean, you just didn't cover the Lafitte trial in a similar fashion, these big moments. What, what is it like for you in those moments? Well, yeah, I was just going to add that um, there was actually, so the moment when Thad talked about rushing out of the room, I remember that very well, and it was quite dramatic. And then actually a lot of people, I think, left the media center as well. So there were really only a few of us who were kind of watching the verdict from there because either people were going into the courtroom or they were going to, I guess, plan to wait outside to see uh, what happened when, when everyone left the courthouse. But that, so kind of after that initial rush it was pretty quiet and that anticipation was i don't know it was i think that was probably the most nerve-wracking part for me because there was actually quite a bit of time between when that movement happened on the tv and when jurors actually got into the courtroom and the verdict was read and so i remember just looking at Avery being like, is something, you know, wrong with the feed? Are we missing something? Is there a problem with one of the jurors? But so I think that piece was different from the Lafitte trial in the sense that uh, the verdict was read in that trial much more quickly. It just to jump And deliberations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just one thing I thought I would jump in on is one thing I've been sort of reflecting on in the, in the few days we've had since almost a week now, I guess, uh, since the verdict uh, was announced is this story has been such a big deal in South Carolina that it's sort of been like at like the max capacity of like what a story looks like in South Carolina readers minds. Right. Um, but one thing that's really striking to me is I, I think sort of in the bubble of Walterboro um, and certainly in the courtroom where it's just a 200 year old courtroom, it's not like you sort of see all this wall of cameras um, I don't think I fully appreciated how big of a story this had become nationally. I mean, to see it on SNL this weekend was like a little bit shocking and mind boggling to me. Um, and I'm sort of grateful for that because uh, it, it was it was nice to sort of have that moment and know it's a big moment, a really big deal, but sort of not not fully appreciate like the whole nation's eyes are on this moment. Um, it was really, really striking in hindsight to realize. No doubt. So Avery, uh, Murdoch's attorneys indicated shortly after his sentencing that they were going to appeal the guilty verdict all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court if necessary. When can we expect that appeal and what grounds might they have? They have about 10 days from the the verdict to appeal. And so we're, we're coming up sort of uh, close to that deadline. So we're expecting an appeal, you know, sometime uh, later this week, which we're recording on March the 9th or early next week, you know, around the March the 13th area. Um, and, you know, they believe they have lots of grounds for an appeal, so much so that they were talking about it openly in front of dozens of reporters and news cameras within hours of the, the verdict being read um, or within hours of the sentencing. And they believe that the number one, you know, the critical issue that sunk them in this case were the admission of the financial crimes. Um, you know, the fact that Murdoch's prosecutors were allowed to bash him over and over and over again about the fact that he lied and, and cheated and stole from everyone in his orbit. Um, the initial point of introducing all that evidence was 
strictly for motive. The jury was instructed two or three times that they could not consider the financial crimes as evidence of Murdoch's character or as evidence of his propensity to commit crimes. They could only look at it in in terms of and in the context of uh, establishing that Murdoch was under significant pressure and that that pressure led to his decision to kill Maggie and Paul. But what we saw later on in the case you know, was the the state using those financial crimes to, again, just do a, an all-out character assassination of Murdoch. Um, even in the closing arguments that Prosecutor John Metters delivered, he, he basically downplayed the importance of motive and noted that the state doesn't have to prove motive at all. Uh, and, and he, you know, just said that this case is about uh, being real, you know, and, and, and essentially saying that Murdoch was not real. Murdoch, you know, was someone who lied and who, who stole from people. So, you know, they, they, they believe they've got several grounds, but the, the main one uh, for, that you're going to hear about on the appeal is the admission of those financial crimes and, and how it changed the course of, of this trial. And it really did. I mean, it added weeks and weeks and weeks of testimony, um, you know, and, and it turned this trial from a narrow look at the murders and who may have committed them and how they happened to this character study of, of Murdoch uh, as, a, as a mastermind of all these crimes. Well said. Well, since the trial ended, we've also learned a bit about the makeup of the jury and how they reached the guilty verdict. What have they been saying and what have we learned, if anything, about their deliberations? Um, yeah, so I think we've seen, what, four of the 12 jurors speak publicly, and they, they tell pretty similar stories. There, there's a little bit of a, a discrepancy about how long it really took for them to, to come to a decision. One juror said it was clear within 45 minutes. Others have said it. they took most of the, the three hours or so that they were uh, in the jury room, sort of walking through step by step the concerns that people had. But it's been interesting to kind of hear a little bit of insight about how they were operating. For instance, there's been a lot of discussion about how they didn't take notes throughout the trial. But one of the jurors, James McDowell, said that they actually did have notepads back in the jury room. And during these sort of 15-minute breaks when everyone was rushing to find a bathroom, they would go write down the questions that they had. And often those would end up being resolved within a few days. Um, But it sort of gave them a baseline of... What, what do I need to have answered to sort of feel satisfied in making a decision one way or the other? I think the sort of consensus uh, of the four people who've spoken, it sounds like is what, what really the case hinged on is the, is the kennel video, which is not surprising, right? This video where Alec is heard uh, in the background talking about the dog catching a chicken with uh, Maggie and Paul. And then I, it sounded as well that for some of them when Alec took the stand and tried to explain why he had lied and admitted to lying to police and to to family and to friends about his whereabouts um, that also sort of nudged them toward uh, toward convicting so yeah I, I think there's still a lot we don't know obviously many people have not spoken and there's there's eight voices that we haven't heard from but it sounds like that was a really key moment which which makes sense I mean it in terms of just how people have been talking about the case, the the challenge for him always was, why would you lie about this sort of monumental, huge moment, clearly important to the investigation? Why would you mislead the police about where you were? 
when they're trying to find who killed your wife and son. Right. I mean, that was yeah. the nagging thing, a real difficult barrier for the defense to overcome, for sure. Um, have any of the jurors that were dismissed spoken out? Uh, so sort of. Judge Newman had dismissed a juror just before defense attorneys had given their closing argument and the panel began deliberating uh, last Thursday. And someone had notified the judge at some point, I guess, during the course of the trial that one of the jurors had apparently been chatting with some people about the case, uh, which is, of course, not allowed. Jurors aren't even supposed to speak with one another during the course of uh, when evidence is being presented. And so, yeah, Newman ended up dismissing her uh, right before they began deliberating. And this juror has retained lawyer Joe McCulloch, and he issued a statement on her behalf this week saying that she doesn't wish to speak publicly at this time. So we don't you know, know her name or her identity or anything, but she did say through her lawyer that, you know, she wants people to know that she took the juror oath and uh, Judge Newman's instruction seriously, and she doesn't believe she did anything wrong. And she also asked for people to stop harassing her. And I guess some people have been calling her work or showing up at her home. And her lawyer also said that they've gotten the Colleton County Sheriff's Department involved to kind of put a stop to that. And th this is the so-called egg juror, correct? It sure is. Yes, there was quite a funny moment when when she was being dismissed, when Judge Newman asked her, you know, are, okay, like, are there any other belongings that you need to have collected from the jury room before you leave? And she said, yes, I need to get my bag and my eggs. And the judge was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, he didn't even think he heard her correctly. And she said that I guess one of the other jurors has a farm and brought fresh eggs for all of their fellow jury members. And so she wanted to take those home with her before leaving the courthouse. Hey, why not? Shortly after Murdoch's trial ended, there was a big development in the case of convicted Murdoch accomplice, Russell Lafitte. Thad, can you remind us who Lafitte is and explain what's going on in his case? Yeah, so Russell Lafitte was the CEO of Palmetto State Bank, um, which is sort of the, I guess it's the biggest bank in Hampton and has sort of a presence across the low country into Beaufort. And Lafitte is, or Lafitte was accused and, and convicted of of helping Alex steal from some of his clients. Um, basically, there, there were several financial schemes that um, that Murdoch used to to take money belonging to his clients, but one of them involved essentially having Russell Lafitte as a conservator or an executor of a client's estate, and he basically took money money written to Palmetto State Bank and sort of put that toward loans that he had or transferred it into family's accounts or his own account. And in that process, essentially diverted money that belonged to clients um, from, from their gain while he was their conservator. Um, and anyway, so he, he was the first person actually in the whole sort of universe of the Murdoch saga to face trial. He went to trial last November in Charleston's federal court and he was convicted on on six counts, including fraud and conspiracy to commit fraud. And 
so anyway, we're still waiting to see what the resolution of his sentencing and everything will be. But the the big step that's happened um, since the the murder trial is that uh, he had requested a new trial. Lafitte had based on a number of factors. Most prominently, there was some chaos with the jury deepened deliberations where a couple of jurors had to be replaced after 10 hours of deliberations. Apparently, it sounds like they were holdout jurors holding out against conviction. And once they were replaced, uh, a verdict was returned pretty quickly. So District Judge uh, Richard Gurgel, who presided over the case, it was sort of up to him to decide on whether uh, Lafitte was entitled to a new trial. And on Monday this week, the judge said that no, he was not entitled. Um, so that sort of sets up an appeal in that process. We'll see how long that takes. But for now, no new trial for for Lafitte. And that sort of also sets up at some point in the coming months, getting uh, a sentence decided for him. Okay. Thank you for that. All right. We've uh, also received more mailbag questions from our listeners since the trial. So let's take a minute and try to answer a few of those. We'll start with this one from Barry, who's been following the case from Tennessee for quite a while. He noticed that a Post and Courier story over the weekend featured an undated picture of the Murdoch burial plots. Barry noted that the grave of Randolph Murdoch, Alex's father, had a large prominent headstone, but there was no such stones for Paul or Maggie's site. Are there grave markers there for them? And and what can you tell us about the burial site? Yeah, I can take that one. I actually had the opportunity to go to the cemetery uh, last Friday. Uh, So I saw the the site kind of in person. And um, the photo that Barry's referencing was actually taken that same day, the day Alec was sentenced, which was March 3rd. And so it, it is a recent photo, and um, both Maggie and Paul have these small grave markers. They appear to be plastic. I'm not sure if they're supposed to be placeholders or what, but it honestly didn't even seem to me like their bodies were buried there, just with how the how close together the markers were. But they're decorated with lots of flowers and other small mementos, like, for instance, Paul's marker has a University of South Carolina cup that people have put flowers and other stuff in. And that's, of course, where he was going to school at the time that he died. And um, Maggie's had a small statue of a yellow lab. And I think maybe this was meant to represent Bubba, who's one of the family dogs that we heard a lot about uh, in the course of the trial. And yeah, overall, it's a pretty, you know, simple cemetery, a simple site. It's right in the center of downtown Hampton, which is, of course, where they lived for decades. Okay, well, thank you. Another question from Barry. To date, has the family of Mallory Beach received any money from the Murdoch's insurance or otherwise to compensate for the death of her resulting from Paul Murdoch's DUI boat operation? I should say allege because he never went to trial on that. Yeah, the... Beach family has gotten or will get money from the Murdochs uh, as part of a partial settlement that basically shelled out a bunch of money from Maggie's estate to the the boat crash survivors, as well as the family of, of Mallory Beach. That was a really complicated settlement involving the sale of the Moselle property, which is worth several million dollars and essentially 
the way it worked is some money from that sale and from what remains of Maggie's estate went to the victims in that case. Uh, about $800,000 of it is going to be split up among the Beach family and uh, two of the other passengers, uh, Morgan Dottie and Miley Altman. Buster ended up getting several hundred thousand dollars, uh, but essentially had to forego most of his inheritance from from his mother's estate. You know that that was again just a partial settlement, though, because that boat crash case is ongoing, and you know Murdoch himself remains a defendant in that case, which should go to trial uh, sometime later this year potentially. Okay. Here's a question from Mary. Uh, she's another curious listener who has sent in several good inquiries during the course of the trial. She asks, now that Alec has confessed to being a liar in the financial cases, which of course he said on the witness stand, uh, what impact is that confession going to have on the financial cases? It kind of, kind of seems like he put himself on the hook there. Thad? Yeah, I think um, there's sort of a a live question there about what that's going to mean and whether those um, those cases go to trial. Uh, I think obviously everybody's sort of in in the mode of assessing right now. Um, Judge Newman sort of suggested that uh, he'd like to to see some of those cases begin going to trial relatively soon, although no dates have been set. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, I, I did not go to law school. I'm not a lawyer. I can't imagine that it's helpful uh, to have admitted sort of specifically to a lot of these uh, these thefts. And I think that was actually part of the, one of the challenges that the defense faced and in, Alec in faced in deciding to testify is once the financial crimes were allowed in as part of the trial, he had to answer to that as well. He couldn't take the fifth. Um, he had to basically address that head on in open court. So in essence, he, he had to, uh, in order to say his side of the story or, or what he claimed to be his side of the story in the murder case, he also had to sort of put himself on the hook for all of these, uh, this pile of financial crimes. Now, when the state prosecutors have talked about those upcoming trials, they've sort of continued to emphasize that he's presumed innocent until he goes to trial. Um, but yeah, I, I can't imagine that it's helping his case. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating watching him on the witness stand trying to navigate that, like to to generally admit to these crimes, but not specifically kind of own any of them. Or, you know, he's, oh, yes, I, I over and over. Yes, I took money that wasn't mine. Yes, I, I really let my clients down. Yes, I stole money. Um and, and they try to say, well, what are the conversations that led up to that? How did those things transpire? And he's like, I, I don't remember. I don't recall specifically. And they present him with something specific and he'd say, well, I, I, I don't dispute that. And so it kind of, well, in a general sense, he admitted to it. I, he didn't offer too many really specific admissions on these individual cases. Um, and there's quite the landscape of cases awaiting him. Uh, Jocelyn, can you tell us a little bit about what that landscape looks like? And uh, you're going to be talking about this a little bit in the story coming up this weekend, are you not? I sure am. So we know that Alec still faces 19 indictments from South Carolina's state grand jury, and those indictments total 99 charges, and they all accuse him of defrauding victims, which are his legal clients, his former law partners, and others who trusted him of more than eight and a half million dollars. And 
As Thad mentioned, uh, Judge Newman, as the presiding judge over the state grand jury, um, is assigned to kind of oversee these cases as well. And he expressed uh, right before he sentenced Alec in the murders of Maggie and Paul that he intends to schedule some of these state grand jury cases soon, but um, scheduling them could be tricky given that one of Alec's defense attorneys is Dick Harputlian, whose other job is a state senator, and they're right in the middle of session. But it sounds like he and Judge Newman intends to um, absolutely see um, these charges and these cases through. And, and he mentioned, you know, wanting to get um, or just that that the victims or alleged victims in, in these cases deserve for, you know, their thoughts to be heard. And then Alec also faces three indictments from the Hampton County Grand Jury stemming from the September 2021 roadside shooting, which was an alleged insurance fraud scheme in which he had asked an associate to shoot him in the head so that he could die and his remaining son, Buster, could collect on his life insurance policy. So that's sort of what we have coming up with regard to Alec's criminal cases. And then, of course, there are a number of his associates who have pending criminal charges as well. Okay. And obviously we're going to be following this stuff and, and chasing down a whole bunch of other stories related to this where we're not going anywhere. And uh, that initial entry in that field uh, you're working on for this weekend, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So we're, we're taking a look at um, some of the issues that came up at trial regarding how this investigation was handled. Obviously um, the state um, successfully secured a conviction of, of Alec for on the murder charges um, but I, I think one thing that was pretty evident to me, uh, at least following along through the trial is there were several missteps or, uh, missed opportunities, uh, for SLED throughout this investigation, things that could have taken what has been, um, sort of this open ended mystery and, um, and boiled it down a little bit more. Simply, for instance, one one issue that came up is Sled lost the GPS data on Maggie's phone, and because we have GPS data from Alex's car, we could have seen when that phone was tossed on the side of the road near the Mazelle property. Was it traveling with Alec or not? That would have, I think, sort of simplified the case in a lot of ways and and clarified a lot of um, the picture of what happened. So we're taking a look at that. Um, that'll be coming out in the Sunday paper. Um, as soon as I write it, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack. I mean, six weeks of trial is an enormous amount of information. So there, there are a lot of threads to continue to follow and, uh, look forward to following them. Yeah. You all really did terrific work throughout this trial and in the months leading up to it. And, uh, I, I'd be remiss today if we didn't mention that, uh, this is going to be Avery's, uh, last, last tour on the podcast as he's moving on to new challenges. He's just done great work on this case since the date of the murders and, and, uh, you know, all the way through trial and, and really helped build this podcast in, in, into something we think is pretty special. So, uh, wish him the best of luck moving forward. And that about does it for this episode of Understand Murdoch. As always, stay tuned with the Post and Courier for the latest updates in this case. You can follow us on Twitter at Post and Courier. 
You can find all of our latest coverage on our Murdoch landing page, postandcourier.com slash Murdoch. We would love if you could send questions, feedback, and tips to our Murdoch email address. That's Murdoch at postandcourier.com. Please also take a minute to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts, especially if you like this show. Uh, Until next time, um, happy trails.